This is a massive, self-inflicted wound on our country. Hey, and nobody knows more about that than you, do they, Mr. President? Oh, boy. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ. On the Central Coast at 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on your internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, at least. I'm Brad Friedman. Feels like eight days a week. Uh, Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know that everyone is is still talking about Charlottesville today for some odd reason. <laughs> I don't know why that is, Desi Doyen. Yeah, and I don't know. Will, it's, uh, it's almost like it's important big news or something. Well, <laughs> I, you know what? It, it is to a certain extent. Well, it, it certainly is what yes, happened there. But uh, Trump's response to it, I mean, he just keeps digging and digging and digging. And I know that the, um, the mainstream uh, corporate media will be talking Talking about that again today, tonight, for the next several days, at least because Trump gave a statement at Trump Tower this afternoon. This was uh, meant to be comments on infrastructure. Yes, he was. uh, (laughs) uh, It was supposed to be a rollout of a signing of an executive order about infrastructure and how they were going to do some stuff. It's, you know, it's kind of a long story, but he didn't talk about that much. Well, he talked about it, but then he opened it up to questions. Right. A very short statement on infrastructure and then opening up uh, questions to the media, which he hasn't done in Lord knows how long. For good reason. Yeah, I was going to say today we see why. Uh, uh, because the longer the question and uh, answer period went on, the more he, Trump, was defending folks. It felt like to me watching it, defending folks on the right, uh, at the in Charlottesville, the neo Nazis, the KKK. He said, uh, "I'm sure there were some very nice people there <laughs> among the right." Uh, and then, but uh, of note, uh, he equated the Nazis and the white nationalists there with what he called the alt-left, charging that uh, they were equally to blame for the violence that broke out on Saturday. So I know that everyone is going to be talking about that today, tonight, tomorrow in the corporate media, and we'll get to to some of that, uh, some more of that fallout from the weekend uh, riots and tragedy in Charlottesville here today, hopefully. 
Uh, and maybe tomorrow we'll open up some phone lines on all of this. But I, I want to cover, I do want to get to some actual news that has been getting pushed aside. But before I do, the the comments throughout Donald Trump's responses today as to why it took him so long to name neo-Nazis, white supremacists, KKK, uh, was kind of amazing. He kept saying the same thing over and over again, and we've pulled them into a single clip, because a, a single clip of irony, I guess we could call <laughs> it at this point. Uh, here was uh, his response as to why he didn't come out immediately. And by the way, as you know, you know, th- this is what made him famous, you know, coming out immediately on Twitter and condemning this and condemning that before he became president. And since he's become president, uh, you know, he's Mr. Hot Takes, basically, oh, uh, sure. you know, calling out any incident that happens anywhere in the world as terrorism. Oh, he labels it instantly. But he wouldn't do that here. So he explained. So he explained why today over and over again in this clip. Oh, irony. I wanted to make sure, unlike most politicians, that what I said was correct, not make a quick statement. The statement I made on Saturday, the first statement, was a fine statement. It takes a little while to get the facts. You still don't know the facts. I want to know the facts. When when? I make a statement, I like to be correct. Do you? I want the facts. (laughs) Before I make a statement, I need the facts. So I don't want to rush into a statement. Making the statement when I made it, was excellent. Unlike you and unlike the media, before I make a statement, I like to know the facts. I want to make sure when I make a statement that the statement is correct. No, you there was don't. no way of making a correct statement that early. Oh. I had to see the facts. Unlike a lot of reporters, I couldn't have made it sooner because I didn't know all of the facts. Excuse me. It was very important to me to get the facts out and correctly. I want to make a statement with knowledge. I wanted to know the facts. Okay. And of course, this is the guy who for years promoted that incredibly false lie of the birther conspiracy about Obama. He wanted the facts first before saying well, such uh, things. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, Right, of course. And not just the birther uh, thing, but pretty much everything. everything that comes out of his mouth. Yes. All of a sudden, he'd like to get the facts before he talks. Well, that sounds like a great idea. If it wasn't so... <laughs> ironically ridiculous based on his uh, based on his record in any case all right with that out of the way let's get to some actual news here that has been getting uh, pushed aside by all of this some of which we even had to push off yesterday uh, because there's a lot we need to keep our eyes on at least in my opinion other than Trump's shiny objects and the various mainstream media chum of the day so uh, yes we are by the way still in a standoff potentially a nuclear one with North Korea and even potentially with Venezuela. Venezuela, yes. Uh, Trump threatened them with uh, military action for some reason late last week. You know, I kind of wish you'd wait to get the facts on that before threatening (laughs) military action against Venezuela, fire and fury against North Korea. The eminently reasonable Joe Cirincione of the uh, non-nuclear proliferation organization, uh, the Plowshares Fund, was back on MSNBC. This was Friday night, just after this statement that Trump was considering military action in Venezuela at the same time he was threatening North Korea. Um, 
And uh, well, I'll, I'll offer you this uh, today as a moment of reassurance uh, for the week. Not reassurance that all of this will work out peacefully, though I have some good news, I think, on that in a second. But reassurance for you and frankly for me that no, neither you nor me are crazy, at least not crazy uh, if we think what is going on here is insane. This is very much not normal. This is not what is going uh, what, what normally goes on. And it's sort of becoming normal in the eight months that he's been president. But this sort of thing is not normal. Here's here's Joe Serencioni, um, who is, as I say, usually quite reasonable and calm and uh, collected. Here's what he had to say after uh, the president's comments about Venezuela on Friday. I don't see any evidence that the real experts, the people who actually know what they're doing, what they're talking about, have control over this situation. They are being dragged behind by the president who seems to make it up on the fly. When he says, you know, I'm not going to talk about that, we don't talk about that, what he means really is, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just thought this up a minute ago, these words are coming out of my mouth, and now I'll leave it to my staff to justify no, and uh, explain what I'm saying. Th this is troubling enough when it comes to things like Venezuela, when it comes to what could be the largest war we've seen on this planet since World War II and possibly a nuclear exchange, this is downright dangerous. This is not normal. This is bizarre. We are witnessing the destruction of American grand strategy before our eyes. We're witnessing the collapse of American credibility. I, no, I don't think the adults have control over this situation. So the destruction of American grand strategy, some people might be in favor of that. And uh, frankly, if Donald Trump had any kind of strategy here, uh, even that might be reasonable. The destruction of America's grand strategy and our uh, empiricism around the world. Is that a word? Empiricism? Empirical behavior around the world. Empire behavior. <laughs> there you go. Um but no, he's just making this up as he goes, and it is damn dangerous. So uh, hopefully you feel reassured somewhat that no, you are not crazy. No, this uh, is not normal. This is incredibly b bizarre. But here's something that maybe, and I know, maybe I'm just grasping for straws, uh, grasping for some kind of hope here. Uh, but as we, uh, as we went off the air Yesterday on the show, news broke that North Korea military leaders had briefed Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader, on this plan that they had promised to send missiles towards the U.S. territory of Guam. And uh, as we noticed, uh, noted, the uh, Korean military had promised that a few North Korean military had promised that a few days ago. They would present this plan to Kim and then figure out what to do. Uh, well, at the time we went off the air, the news was just breaking. AP had a breaking headline, but they had no story on what had happened. Now we actually have some more information. And I think I think in the uh, ensuing whatever it's been, 12, 24 hours since <laughs> then, we've got some good news here from AP. North Korea said Tuesday that Kim Jong-un was briefed on his military plans to launch missiles into waters near Guam as part of an effort to create, quote, enveloping fire near the U.S. military hub in the Pacific. The comments, while typically belligerent, are significant because they appeared to signal a path to defuse the deepening crisis with Washington over a weapons program that is seen as having the ability to 
be able to send a nuclear missile to the U.S. mainland. You know, like the West Coast here in Los Angeles. During an inspection of the Army's strategic forces, Kim praised the military for drawing up a, quote, close and careful plan and said he would watch the, quote, foolish and stupid conduct of the Yankees. A little, not the baseball Yankees. I think he's talking (laughs) about Americans. Uh, Conduct of the Yankees a little bit more before deciding whether to give an order for the missile test, the North's official Korean Central News Agency said. Kim said North Korea will conduct the planned missile launches if the, quote, Yankees persist in their extremely dangerous, reckless actions on the Korean peninsula and its vicinity, and that the United States should, quote, think reasonably and judge properly to avoid shame, according to the news agency. Um... In the uh, hour or so since that uh, report, which, again, appears to be good news that at least Kim says he will wait and see what the U.S. does. Uh, Since that came out, both uh, South Korea and the U.S. as well have also given signals to suggest that they are willing to avert a deepening crisis with each uh, suggesting a path towards negotiations. So what we're seeing here is. I don't want to say Kim is blinking yet, but I think there's some encouraging news here that uh, from uh, certainly from North Korea. But we've also got some uh, more word from both South Korea and the U.S. that, hey, there is a way out here. Well, you could probably and I'm sure that the Trump administration will characterize it as uh, Kim Jong un backing off. But to me, it sounds like he's actually being kind of the voice of reason. He flinched. He backed down. He, Instead of, uh, he, he, he pulled his head on well, and decided to use his brain th- no, and say, listen, hey. If Trump wants to say that he was able to stare down uh, Kim on this issue and get him to back off, that's fine. I'll give him all the credit that Donald Trump wants as long as we don't go to war. The, uh, the AP reports the tentative interest in diplomacy, the suggestion about diplomacy, um, which is seems to be what uh, Kim is suggesting there, follows unusually combative threats, of course, between Trump and North Korea amid worries that Pyongyang is nearing its long-sought goal of being able to send a nuclear missile to the U.S. mainland. Next week's start of U.S.-South Korean military exercises that enrage the North each year could make the, the diplomacy, however, more difficult. Lobbing missiles toward Guam would obviously be a deeply provocative act uh, from the U.S. perspective. And the U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said that the U.S. would take out any such missiles seen to be heading for American soil and declared any such North Korean attack could lead to war. Kim's comments, however, uh, with with their conditional tone, seem to hold out the possibility that friction could ease if the U.S. made some sort of gesture to Pyongyang, that they would consider a move to back away from the, quote, extremely dangerous, reckless actions, as they describe Uh, those U.S.-South Korea plans uh, for uh, exercises in the military exercises in the area. On Monday, Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford held a series of meetings with senior South Korean military. And here's where we have some more hope. Uh, he, He also made comments that appeared to be an attempt to ease anxiety over the tit for tat threats from Donald Trump and North Korea 
while showing a willingness to back up Trump's warnings if need be. Dunford, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said the United States wants to peacefully resolve tensions with North Korea, but that we are ready to use the full range of military capabilities if we are provoked. Dunford is visiting South Korea, Japan, and China. Uh, after a week in which Trump declared the U.S. military is locked and loaded and was ready to unleash fire and fury if North Korea continued to threaten uh, the United States. But he held out that uh, possibility of resolving peacefully these tensions. And here's where it gets even better. And I realize better is qualified at this point, but even better. South Korean President Moon Jae-in a liberal who favors diplomacy here urged North Korea to stop provocation and to commit talks over its nuclear weapons program and said that there must not, quote, there must not be another war on the Korean peninsula. Moon, in uh, his televised speech today on the anniversary of World War II's end and the Korean peninsula's liberation from Japanese colonial rule, said that Seoul and Washington agree that the nuclear standoff should, quote, absolutely be solved peacefully. And he said no U.S. military action on the Korean peninsula could be taken without Seoul's consent. Now, this is key. This is important, at least it seems to me, because uh, no one has as much immediate skin in the game as Seoul does, with some 25 million people who live there, including, by the way, tens of thousands of Americans. And they are within easy shooting distance of North Korea. They're in Seoul. There's no, you know, medium or long range missiles necessary. Just artillery fire uh, could go across the border and could cause a huge damage. So Seoul is saying and now its uh, president is saying on the record that no action will be taken without our agreement here in South Korea. Uh, Moon said our government will put everything on the line to prevent another war on the Korean peninsula, regardless of whatever twists and turns we could experience. The North Korean nuclear program should absolutely be solved peacefully. And the South Korean government and the U.S. government don't have a different position on this. Well, that is encouraging. Is it? However, you did yes. say that military exercises are still scheduled right. with the U.S. and South Korea. For next week. For next week. Yep. So we could see a little bit more, if not more, definitely more saber rattling next week when these exercises take place. Yep. So that could be ahead of us. But we have this this moment after a, a sort of a a breathless week or so of threats coming from both sides brinksmanship brinksmanship coming from both sides uh i see a possibility of hey maybe diplomacy could break out that seems to me to be a very good thing oh i would agree with you and also the fact that these the president of south korea has stepped forward and asserted his own authority in mm -hmm. all of this yep. which seems to be a, a very big linchpin in all of that okay so with that good news let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some uh, Charlottesville-related news that is probably not as good. But, you know, they, they can't all be pearls. Quick break, and we're back with more broadcast right after. Oh, and we've got this new report from the CBO on uh, Donald Trump's threats <sighs> to uh, undermine uh, the Affordable Care Act. So we've got all of that news and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. <laughs> 
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com along the Watchtower here. You know who else has been all along the Watchtower? The uh, FBI and the DHS, sort of. Uh, They warned, uh, apparently, in May, the FBI and DHS, in May of this year, warned that white supremacist groups had already carried out more attacks than any other domestic extremist group over the past 16 years here in the U.S., and that they were likely to carry out more attacks over the next year, according to an intelligence bulletin that was obtained by foreign policy. Uh, This is, uh, and it kind of reminds me of that uh, warning to George W. Bush that uh, Osama bin Laden determined to uh, attack in U.S. Determined to strike in the U.S. that he received August 6th, 2001. Oh, good memory. Well done. Uh, So the FBI and DHS was warning the uh, Trump administration exactly about this. Even as Trump continued to resist calling out white supremacists for violence over the weekend, federal law enforcement had made clear that it sees these types of domestic extremists as a severe threat here in the U.S. The report, dated May 10 of this year, says the FBI and DHS believe that members of the white supremacist movement, quote, likely will continue to pose a threat of lethal violence over the next year. We covered yesterday in a story that was lost uh, to a well to a lot of folks amongst the uh, noise going on about this uh, plot that was stopped over the weekend to uh, blow up the Federal Reserve Bank in Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, yeah, uh, sort of a a copycat attack of uh, Timothy McVeigh back in the 90s. And this 23-year-old kid, uh, anti-government kid, was thought he was about to blow it up, actually dialed in the phone number into his cell phone three different times to blow up what turned out to be A fake bomb, a decoy bomb. But he thought, you know, that's what was going to happen. So domestic extremists, domestic terrorism. Trump has been warned about this and Trump continues to ignore it. The Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, which attracted hundreds of white supremacists over the weekend and neo-Nazis and other members of the so-called alt-right, 
helped to spark violent clashes over the weekend. Foreign policy notes and uh, a woman, a 32-year-old counter-protester, Heather Heyer, was killed by a car driven by an apparent white nationalist uh, that drove into a crowd of people protesting the rally. The driver of the vehicle that struck Heyer was arrested. He was charged with second-degree murder. And But since the outbreak of violence over the weekend, Trump has been heavily criticized, of course, for not immediately or specifically condemning racist groups. And today he equated people on the left, what he called the alt-left, with uh, with folks on the right. But the FBI has uh, was trying to warn him, has already uh, concluded, according to uh, foreign policy, that white supremacists, including neo-Nazi supporters and members of the Ku Klux Klan, are in fact responsible for the lion's share of violent attacks among domestic extremist groups. White supremacists uh, were responsible for 49 homicides in 26 attacks from 2000 to 2016, more than any other domestic extremist uh, movement, according to this joint intelligence bulletin. The report is titled White Supremacist Extremism Poses Persistent Threat of Lethal Violence. Again, prepared by the FBI and the DHS, the bulletin's numbers appear to correspond with outside estimates that we've been talking about uh, over the past day or so. An independent database compiled by the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute found that between 2008 and 2016, far-right plots and attacks outnumbered Islamic Islamist incidents by almost two to one. So way farther than any uh, 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 violence from the so-called left, way worse than uh, two to one outnumbering uh, Islamic related incidents. Among the cases cited in this intelligence report, an 18 year old Chinese student in uh, Nashville, Indiana, who was attacked by a white supremacist with a hatchet. The murder of an African-American man in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The stabbing of a Klansman in East Yanceyville, North Carolina, by other KKK members who believed that the victim was Jewish and secretly working for law enforcement. An FBI spokesperson said it was the Bureau policy not to comment on specific intelligence products, but added that, quote, as part of the continuous dialogue with our law enforcement partners, the FBI routinely shares information about potential threats to better enable law enforcement to protect the communities they serve. All of which makes the matter that we discussed with my guest Tony McAleer uh, yesterday on the show even more curious. Uh, Tony, if you heard the show, uh, if not, you can download it at bradblog.com. Tony is a former neo-Nazi skinhead. He's now a co-founder of Life After Hate, a group that works to help people to get out of the violent far-right extremist movements like the KKK and neo-Nazis, etc., and back into society. We reported... Um, on the show yesterday that the Obama administration had created a grant fund to fight domestic terrorism just before Obama left office to fight domestic terror here in the U.S., including violence motivated by Islamic extremism, as well as groups like Tony McAleer's Life After Hate to combat right wing domestic extremists like that by neo-Nazis and the KKK, etc. The people that the FBI and the DHS reports say are a much bigger threat in the United yep. States than any other social group. Correct. 
So uh, this money was set aside. Congress had approved this money. But in June, the Trump administration cut off the funding grants for the anti-white supremacist groups like Life After Hate without explanation. So we were left to wonder why, why that would be. McAleer uh, was, was said he was told nothing by the administration as to why. Uh, but, you know, I think we can all speculate that it was due to the Trump administration's lack of interest in combating things like, you know, white nationalism, uh, instead focusing on Islamic terror instead, or terror by immigrants of any type, even though that also is way lower than than the crime rates uh, by people who are born here in the United States. Well, now we have a bit more information as to what may have happened to cut off that funding to the group Life After Hate. This from Jessica Schulberg, um, who got some information over at Huffington Post on this. The uh, the Department of Homeland Security had awarded uh, the group Life After Hate some $400,000 as part of its Countering Violent Extremism program in January, just days before... President Obama left office. It was the it was the uh, only group selected for a grant that focused exclusively on fighting white supremacy. But that grant money was not immediately dispersed, even though it had been announced. Trump aides, including Catherine Gorka. That last name sound familiar? A uh, controversial national security analyst known for her anti-Muslim rhetoric. Uh, the, the Trump aides were already working back in December towards eliminating Life After Hate's grant and to direct all funding instead towards fighting what the president has described as, quote, radical Islamic terrorism. In December, Gorka, who was then a member of Trump's transition team, met with um, uh, George Selim, a DHS official who was head, heading the Countering Violent Extremism program until he resigned last month. And uh, his then-deputy, uh, David Gersten, she met with both of them. Gorka told Selman Gersten that she did not agree with the Obama administration's approach to countering violent extremism, particularly the way the administration had described the threat of extremism, according to Nate Snyder, an Obama administration DHS uh, counterterrorism official who was an advisor on that countering violent extremism program. So Gorka and her husband, Sebastian Gorka, a name that might be more familiar. I had never heard of Catherine Gorka. So but Sebastian Gorka, uh, a White House advisor that uh, nobody seems to be quite clear exactly what it is that Sebastian Gorka does. Um, but in any event, uh, her Sebastian Gorka uh, and uh, his wife uh, have collaborated on numerous writings over the years about the threat of radical Islam, though they have a very large following, apparently within far right circles. Um, mainstream national security experts apparently are, have been critical of the work of both of them. But the day after Trump won the election, according to Huffington Post, Sebastian Gorka said, quote, I predict with absolute certitude the jettisoning of concepts such as the countering violent extremism efforts and grants. Oh, wow. He predicted that for some reason with absolute certitude. And once Trump entered the White House in January, the office of then uh, DHS Secretary John Kelly, now chief of staff 
But then uh, Department of Homeland Secretary John Kelly had ordered a full review of this program, the counter countering violent extremism program. Kelly's office wanted to revet the groups that were receiving a portion of the $10 million the Congress had appropriated for it, even though DHS had already publicly announced the grant uh, recipients. So this is John Kelly, General John Kelly, who is now Trump's chief of staff. Remember, he's supposed to be the reasonable one. He's going to bring back sanity, sanity, order to this crazy administration. That's right. He was the one overseeing, essentially, this full review of the countering violent extremism program that ended up removing the money from groups like uh, Tony McAleer's Life After Hate. Uh, While that review was underway, at that same time, that's when... DHS and FBI were then warning in that internal intelligence bulletin about the threat posed by white supremacists. Finding that white supremacists were responsible for 49 homicides and 26 attacks from 2000 to 2016, what the foreign policy uh, magazine was writing about. So even as that was going on, the administration was getting information about the threat from domestic, homegrown white supremacists, uh, and they were looking at ways to cut off the money to groups that were combating homegrown domestic white supremacists. That was John Kelly, the sensible, reasonable uh, new uh, chief of staff for Donald Trump. So when DHS then published a new list of award recipients on June, this is just about a month ago, just over a month ago, no mention of life after hate, despite the fact that they were all warned about this. DHS also revoked funding, by the way, from the Muslim Public Affairs Council, which is an American Muslim advocacy group that was told in January it would receive nearly $400,000 to create community resource centers throughout the country. Less than two months After DHS announced that it was pulling funding from Life After Hate, James Alex Fields Jr., a 20-year-old Ohioan, traveled to Charlottesville, Virginia to join white supremacists armed with long guns, waving Nazi and Confederate flags, protesting the removal of a statue of uh, Confederate General Robert E. Lee from the local park. And he is now accused of ramming a Dodge Challenger into the crowd of pedestrians and counter-protesters on Saturday and has been charged with second-degree murder for the death of counter-protester Heather Heyer. So you see how this all works together? You see how it all comes together? Uh, we have warnings about this. These warnings are ignored. Are, uh, it doesn't matter because Donald Trump wants to do what Donald Trump wants to do. Even though he today pretends that, oh, he wants to wait on all the facts for the facts to come in. Well, guess what? He had the facts. He had the facts. Uh, Warning about what uh, ultimately came to pass on Saturday in both Charlottesville and in Oklahoma. And he did the opposite of the facts. In fact, in the White House now, as HuffPost uh, notes, Trump has surrounded himself with an array of people tied Two white supremacists, uh, anti-Semitics, anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant groups. Catherine Gorka is now an advisor in the Department of Homeland Security's policy office. 
She has pushed conspiracy theories about the Muslim Brotherhood infiltrating the government and the media. Sebastian Gorka is a deputy assistant to the president, has described Islamic uh, has described Islam as inherently violent. He argued days before the Charlottesville attack that, in fact, white supremacy is not, quote, the problem facing the country. Stephen Miller, another Trump speechwriter, uh, has uh, blamed the uh, 2001 terror attacks on poor immigration enforcement. He's accused black students of racial paranoia. National Security Council spokesman Michael Anton wrote under a pseudonym that Islam is incompatible with the modern West and that diversity is a source of weakness, tension, and disunion in this country. And Trump himself, of course, campaigned for president on the platform of banning Muslims from traveling to the U.S. and building a wall to keep Mexicans out. Proposals that won him much enthusiastic support from those very white supremacists who were on parade uh, over the weekend and who continue, apparently, to be happy about Trump's continuing statements. Since, uh, Des, you said that uh, David Duke, a former Klan uh, uh, grand yes. wizard, had a, uh, yes. had a statement following Trump comparing the quote-unquote alt-left to the quote-unquote alt-right today? Yes, shortly after Trump finished his remarks at Trump Tower earlier today, David Duke tweeted, quote, Thank you, President Trump, for your honesty and courage to tell the truth about Charlottesville and condemn the leftist terrorists in Black Lives Matter Antifa. Antifa being shorthand for anti-fascists. Those are the people that have been uh, coming and, and confronting neo-Nazis and mm-hmm. white supremacists at all of their rallies that they've been holding over the last couple of months. And some of them, by the way, have been quite radical. Are those the guys who are, we often see dr- uh, dressed in black wearing and masks. masks? Yeah. And, and they and they come out to most to, to, to many like conventions like they come out to the G20 convention. They come out to Davos. There's a big group. They of- came out to Ann, Ann Coulter when she was speaking or when she was scheduled to speak up at uh, Berkeley. And exactly. they and they caused a lot of uh, property damage Right. And you can separate them, I think, the folks who call themselves Antifa, anti-fascists, mm-hmm. with the folks who are just, you know, the regular old left who say, you know, we are against racism. We are against uh, fascism. We are against white supremacy. We are for American values of liberty, freedom, equality. You know, I think you can separate them. They're not the same people. And while I, you know, I don't always agree with the idea that, uh, you know, the, the Antifa who, who wanted to keep Ann Coulter who, as you know, I despise, uh, I should say voter fraud criminal and Coulter, uh, you know, I despise her. But uh, keeping her from talking, well, that's a matter of free speech as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and uh, using violence to keep that from happening is I certainly don't support. But the idea that they have been threatening people, that they have been killing people, that's just not true. That's right. just not true. So to compare these uh, these two sides, to compare the the Nazis in this country uh, to uh, to Black Lives Matter, really? Oh, I know. Really, I know. Only that's what they do. And then this this, this is a completely false equivalency because only one side, as you note, kills people. Only one side would commit genocide if given the power to do so. You know, create their own white nationalist state and kick everybody else out, or worse. Yep. Black Lives Matter just wants people, wants police to stop killing people. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, all right, and one more. I, I, we got to get to a break here because I want to come back with the uh, with the CBO and their new findings about what Donald Trump's threat to Affordable Care Act and and what it will mean to you. Um, but another uh, related story here related to uh, Charlottesville uh, and another uh, quickly moving story since yesterday's show. You'll recall that we reported on the CEO of Merck pharmaceutical company, uh, one of the very few African-American CEOs in the Fortune 500, who announced that he was pulling out of the president's so-called manufacturing council of advisors uh, due to the way that Trump had handled the fallout from Charlottesville. Trump had no problem quickly denouncing him, the African-American CEO of Merck, uh, for dropping out of the council, took to Twitter within an hour to go after him. Well, now other CEOs on this manufacturing council have taken uh, have taken his lead. Uh, this is uh, and it, it is Kenneth Frazier's lead of Merck. Since that happened, another three CEOs is like one after another since we got off the air. And again, today have been pulling out of this council. The president of a manufacturing association now has become the fourth executive to walk away from Trump after he took two days to denounce white supremacy. Scott Paul, the head of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, quit Trump's uh, Manufacturing Council on Tuesday, said on Twitter that it was, quote, the right thing for me to do. He joined the CEOs of Merck, Under Armour and Intel, who all left the council on Monday. The council had been established by Trump in January with about two dozen members. So two dozen members, you now got four of them dropping dropping out. That's a beginning to become a substantial number. Uh, they're, they meet occasionally and they offer uh, the president advice on jobs. Trump responded quickly again here today, saying on Twitter, quote, for every CEO that drops out of the manufacturing council, I have many to take their place. Grandstanders should not have gone on. And then in all caps, jobs, exclamation. First to leave the, uh, he's very quick, very quick responding on Twitter. No when, problem with when that. When he wants to, That's yeah. That's interesting. First to leave the Manufacturing Council uh, after uh, the Charlottesville, of course, was uh, Ken Frazier of Merck. Uh, who said that uh, we must honor our fundamental values by clearly rejecting expressions of hatred, bigotry, and group supremacy. Uh, within minutes, Trump came out and attacked him on Twitter. Kevin Plank, the CEO of Under Armour, quit the council later in the day, saying Under Armour engages in innovation and sports, not politics. And he was quickly followed last night by Intel CEO Brian uh, Krasanich, who was uh, more direct in his uh, reasons for dropping out. Uh, he said, we should honor, not attack, those who have stood up for equality and other cherished American values. In a blog post on the company's website late last night, he said, I resigned because I want to make progress, while many in Washington seem more concerned with attacking anyone who disagrees with them. Many, many in Washington. I wonder who he's referring to there. Uh, at least seven companies or executives, however, have said they would remain on the council. Those remaining on including uh, include General Electric, which added they have no tolerance for hate, bigotry or racism, but they're going to stay on Donald Trump's council. <laughs> uh, also, five other companies, uh, Dow Chemical, Whirlpool, Campbell Soup, International Paper and Nucor all voiced 
similar sentiments, uh, releasing statements that they condemn racism uh, or that they welcome tolerance, but they also said they'd stay on the council so they could advise the government on ways to strengthen manufacturing. Very, very brave of them, isn't it? I was thinking um, yesterday, uh, as all of this was going on and these CEOs were dropping out, you know what? These guys, these uh, four guys from those companies, uh, uh, Merck, uh, Under Armour, uh, who's the other one? Intel, Intel. And I'm missing one here. Uh, oh, the Manufacturing uh, uh, Alliance for American Manufacturing. They deserve great credit. The White House has a lot of power. They have a lot of power to hurt these people, to hurt those companies. So um, good for those CEOs, for what it's worth, for standing up. Uh, against uh, what they view as uh, racism coming out of this White House. All right, quick break, and we're back with uh, the CBO, and maybe, well, I don't even want to tease it in case I don't have time. (laughs) Uh, I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Busy day. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad kid. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, I've been uh, we we have this new report in today just before airtime from the uh, from the CBO. I have been um, I've been having a conversation via email at uh, at bradcast at bradblog.com if you'd like to drop me a note. I've been having this conversation with a, a listener who was critical of uh, some of the reporting that we did last week citing, uh, among other uh, companies, Horizon, Blue Cross, Blue Shield of New Jersey and their reasons for that they gave for raising premiums, uh, premium rates for 2018 by some 22 percent. The company had cited the uncertainty for uh, for the insurance market um, and uh, specifically for payments that are built into the Affordable Care Act that Donald Trump has now threatened to cut off as part of the reason why they were uh, increasing premiums by 22% this year. They cited that and uh, the GOP's efforts to gut Obamacare entirely, basically citing the uncertainty in Washington, D.C. And they said uh, without certainty that uh, premiums would, would have only, well, without that uncertainty, that premiums would have only been increasing this year by about 10% or so. And the listener I've been uh, speaking with, a uh, very nice person, uh, we'll call her Debbie, um, has said that, uh, that I, I'm believing in what the insurance companies are saying too much. That uh, I was uh, and and I was try- I've been trying to note that I was just reporting the reasons that they gave. I'm not saying that I believe them or not. And uh, but they did give, in fact, you know, data from previous years. This company, for example, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, that in the past when they didn't have this sort of uncertainty, they had only raised premiums anywhere from zero percent to uh, I think it was like 11 percent on one of the years until now. Now it's going up 22 percent. 
Well, now we don't have to take the insurance company's word for it that this uncertainty is causing them to uh, to raise their premiums. A new report out today from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office offers similar findings to what we've been hearing from those insurance companies. Premiums for the most popular health insurance plans would shoot up 20 percent next year. And the federal budget deficits would increase by one hundred and ninety four billion dollars in the coming decade if President Trump carries out his threat to end certain subsidies paid to insurance companies for the benefit of low income people. According to this uh, CBO report, the subsidies um, known as CSRs, cost sharing reductions, um, they reimburse insurers for reducing deductibles and co-payments and other out-of-pocket costs that low-income people pay when they visit doctors or fill prescriptions or receive care in hospitals. The report uh, by the CEO was made at the request of House Democratic leader and uh, the House Democratic whip, and it analyzes uh, what would happen under this policy if uh, those payments were terminated to the insurance companies. And now... This has been a month to month thing. Donald Trump continues to threaten he would do it. He has the power to cut off these payments, apparently, under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Now, uh, by the end of this month, they uh, the CBO says it is known that CSR payments will now continue through December 2017. But we don't know about thereafter. And um, the New York Times reports that even before efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act collapsed in the Senate last month, Trump had began began threatening to cut off these subsidies, these cost sharing reductions. He said the law, the health care law would, quote, implode and Democrats would have no choice but to negotiate a replacement plan. Trump described the strategy as, quote, let Obamacare implode and then deal. So those threats continue each and every month. Uh, And then Trump, so far at least, has issued the subsidies. But if he decided to stop, that would, in effect, shoot up the uh, the the premiums for health insurance plans some 20 percent. And about five percent of the people who live in areas uh, would have no. Well, about five percent of people live in areas that would have no insurers at all if Trump moved forward with this plan. Now, there is uh, some irony here. Um, While premiums would go up, according to the the Affordable Care Act, those people who are signed up via the exchanges would actually not be hurt because the uh, built into the Affordable Care Act is these premium subsidies um, that are included for people who have signed up uh, under a certain uh, who, who make under a certain amount of money. And so as the premiums rise, so do the subsidies. But when it comes to these cost sharing payments, that, too, is mandatory. But if the uh, if the government doesn't pay for it, then the health insurance companies are required to pay for it. And if they have to pay for it, everyone's insurance premiums will go up, including those who don't enjoy the subsidies that are available on the Obamacare exchanges. So higher premiums for everybody. There are, yeah, essentially there are three different ways, if I understand it correctly, that the government, speaking in generally uh, general terms here, that the government helps to pay for, um, for health care 
under uh, under the Affordable Care Act. One, it helps states expand their Medicaid coverage by covering about 90 to 100 percent of the costs of expanding Medicaid to individuals above the poverty line, but whose income is low enough to not be able to afford regular health care premiums. So that's one way. The other way is those subsidies to help uh, for premiums uh, for people and, and families who in, whose income is too high for Medicaid or for the expanded Medicaid, but who otherwise would not be able to afford health insurance premiums every month. Uh, and uh, three, the third way here, and this is what the um, what the CBO is talking about, these cost sharing re- reductions, which lower out of pocket costs for premiums and for deductibles and co-pays for these low-income consumers who have a health care plan, but the costs are still too high for them to afford. That is what Trump is threatening to stop each and every month. To summarize here, Larry Levitt of the Kaiser uh, Family Foundation uh, tweeted that uh, the CBO uh, on ending uh, CSR uh, uh, payments, that the premiums will be up 20%. In 2018, if Donald Trump decides to do this, the deficit will rise 194 billion. And again, why will the, why will the deficit rise? Well, if he cuts off those payments to insurers, well, because the insurers will have to pay them anyway. Therefore, they will increase everyone's premiums and therefore the money that we must spend for the premium subsidies will also increase which will then increase the deficit by up to $194 billion. Uh, Levitt says that ending CSR payments to insurers seems like a pretty clear case of cutting off your nose to spite your face. <laughs> Over 10 years, the federal government would save $118 billion from ending these CSR payments, but they would spend $365 billion more in premium subsidies. Wait, Does how much? Ma- say that again. Well, they're going to save money because they're not going to pay for those CSRs. They're in the short term. $118 billion. No, no, immediately. Okay. They're, okay. Well, they're going to not put out $118 billion uh-huh. for these payments, but they will then have to spend $365 billion more in premiums uh, subsidies to make up for it. So this is like the dumbest thing that you could possibly do. It seems like it would hurt Donald Trump. It seems like people uh, that it would uh, harm folks that were uh, uh, whether they're actually people who aren't on Obamacare. It would harm everyone else. So it's going to harm Donald Trump and it's going to harm people who have health care, but who are not covered with the uh, with these uh, with the premium subsidies. It's going to harm everybody. It's just about so it sounds everybody like exactly except the- for those on the exchange. <laughs> I mean, it's the opposite of what Donald Trump ought to be doing if he was a smart politician or if he gave a damn, I, you know, but or I don't know. if he actually understood how healthcare policy works. Not to say he's not smart. He uh, he did get elected, supposedly, uh, president. On the other hand, he's uh, the most unpopular president in history at this time in his, uh, in his uh, term so far. He hit an all-time low in the Gallup daily tracking poll yesterday, just 34% approval. 61% disapproval. I'm not sure if uh, pulling off a policy that will raise 
that will raise people's premiums by 20% and increase the deficit by nearly $200 billion is a good idea. But, you know, what do I know? Yeah, that 61% disapproval is is a record. No yeah. president has received that much disapproval this early in their term. I mean, it's really, it's really remarkable, but this is where we are. But he still seems uh, to, to want more. Please, sir, may I have another? Let me, he, I think he wants to break a record. I think he wants to say, I have the lowest approval rating of all time of any president ever. I am number one. The number one worst. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. I know we got to get out here, uh, but uh, we, uh, as uh, already the story that we covered in the previous segment, already old news. Apparently, two more uh, CEOs have left Trump's manufacturing council. The head of the AFL uh, AFL CIO has Good. now stepped down from the manufacturing council. Richard Trumka said in a statement posted on Twitter that he cannot sit on a council for a president who tolerates bigotry and domestic terrorism. He called uh, today's remarks comparing the so-called alt-left to the alt-right as the last straw. Statement was jointly issued by Thea Lee, an economist who previously served as deputy chief of staff at the AFL-CIO. And uh, where is it here? Uh, they called it the... Uh, CNN said uh, six. I'm trying to figure out who I had reported four. Now we're up to six. <laughs> I'm not sure who the fifth one is. But in any event, uh, now we've got six who have uh, dropped out of the Manufacturing Council. Um, uh, the, president's the President's White House Council on yeah. Economic Advisors. But you know what? More people have dropped out of Trump's Manufacturing Council than any other president. He's number one. I'm not tired of all this winning yet. All right. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We'll try to open up the phones tomorrow if we can uh, on all of this and much more. If you'd like to drop me an email, I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Hopefully you find, follow, and share us on the Twitters and the Facebooks where I am simply the Brad Blog. And, uh, oh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime at bradblog.com for free. Though we do thank those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.